Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here, back with another weekly episode of Ranching Reboot, where we're shifting paradigms and changing minds and and talking about all kinds of new things going on in the world of agriculture. With me, as always, is my navigator on this crazy mission, my co-pilot, CK. Hey, Brian. Thank you so much. So we have today Rowdy Yates from High Plains Biochar. Rowdy, how are you? I'm doing excellent here in lovely Laramie, Wyoming. It's trying to be spring up here, uh, uh, mixed with a little snow occasionally still. Still snowing. I think that's wild. <laughs> uh, yeah, believe it or not, last year, our last hard freeze day was June 8th. Oh, wow. Okay, so it sounds like that's what you're used to then. Uh, somewhat. That that was a little bit of a bizarre, uh, whatever, that polar vortex or thing that came down that, that time. But, yeah, it, uh, we, we do have a very short growing season around here, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're talking about biochar today, and I really wanted to get into the basics first for, for one, me, who I know nothing about it, and maybe our listeners who know not, some of them may not know as much. Uh, can, you, can you start with the basics and what it is and maybe the intended use? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in, in, in really simple terms, biochar is charcoal. Um, most of you may have made it in, in the past without realizing it. If you've had a campfire and noticed the next morning that there were some black chunks of carbon left in the bottom, that's biochar. Char, you know, if you have a, a fireplace, you may have noticed when you clean out the ashes that occasionally there are some some black chunks of, of charcoal in there. You know, that's biochar. So, in, in simple terms, uh, you know, it, it's just charcoal. Um, some we do make it, you know, in, in different methods, uh, sometimes at, at different temperatures and under much more controlled situations with with automated equipment, which makes it uh, a little bit different. But uh, you can use uh, even even the uh, the ancient Amazonians are kind of the ones that got this all started thousands of years ago. They were uh, having to feed these large uh, civilizations, and they didn't have any of this fancy farm equipment that we have now. So what they decided to do was improve the soil. So they started adding composting, uh, adding manure, adding this charcoal to the, their really sandy soils down there, and they uh, turned out to make them really fertile. And that's kind of how this was rediscovered. As our scientists. Uh, ran across these soils uh, recently and, you know, started researching and saying, what have they done here to make this soil so uh, uh, so different than the surrounding soils? And that's one of the things that they found. They refer to it as terra preta, if you've ever heard of that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've heard people say you can't use, like, treated charcoal, though. Uh, Or a barbecue, they're like probably not because that will it's treated with different chemicals and stuff. Is that right? You know, it it, it kind of depends. You know, I, I guess they may have been referring to using treated wood to make the biochar. Okay, they, they may have also been referring to like having lighter fluid in the yeah. fire pit. I was like, oh, I could just add it to my compost pile that I have uh, in my no, backyard. I don't know about what you guys have there in Kansas. I know in most parts of the western parts of Nebraska, Wyoming, Colorado, we have high pH soils, so the ash isn't okay. good. But other parts of the country, 
where they do have a low pH, so they can add the add the ashes as well. But um, anyhow, so the uh, you know the main use for biochar is uh, using as a soil amendment. Um, you know, I, I think that. Uh, we see it a lot in like the greenhouse industry, specialty agriculture was kind of who adopted this first. Um, you're slowly starting to see it move into to other aspects of agriculture. Um, yep. Using it as a powdered biochar as a seed coating is definitely one of the uses that we're starting to see more in mainstream agriculture. Um, feeding biochar to livestock is starting right. to be more popular. That's what, Brian, that's what you're doing, right? You're feeding it to your, are you feeding it to them? Yeah. 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 I mix it with uh First, uh, Rowdy sent me some tubs last year. Uh, there were molasses, I think, around 4 or 5% protein. Um, and it was just an attractant to get them to eat it. And they started eating it. Then I started mixing it with mineral um, and then just leaving it out loose. And they kind of generally consume it in all forms. And once they get to a point where they balance out, consumption just kind of almost drops off. Uh, perfect. But as, as far as different uses go, biochar is one of those things that it has a lot of different uses. I mean, people are using it for water filtration application. Mm. They're trying to pull phosphorus and nitrogen out of, out of like our lakes and ponds where you're seeing these algae blooms that are taking place. Um, we've done some research uh, capturing mercury out of a uh, flue gas at coal fired uh, power plants. So wow. there's a lot of other really interesting uses for biochar beyond just a soil amendment and feeding it. So, so, but we're primarily interested in, of course, you know, the agriculture, you know, the soil benefits to biochar, whether we're, you know, spreading it on, um, incorporating it into the soil or whether we're using it as a livestock additive. So what are some of the good benefits? Like, why do you want to put biochar in your soil, Rowdy? You know, I, I think simple terms, adding soil carbon, and you're going to hold more moisture. Uh, so you're going to keep moisture available to those roots. Uh, for, for longer periods of time. Uh, it gets really into, you know, cation exchange capacities and the exchange of ions between the roots and that uh, relationship between the biochar and the roots is really interesting. Um, the ability to hold the nutrients is another pretty big one. We don't necessarily get a lot of rain out here uh, where we're at, but where you guys do, you get a lot more moisture. So you may run into issues where you're seeing fertilizers washed out of fields. Uh, and that the biochar can be really good at, at holding on to that uh, that fertilizer and then just releasing it back to the roots as they need it. So it's kind of like an underground warehouse for nutrients, yeah, an underground sponge an underground warehouse. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, an apartment complex for microbes and fungi and protozoa and all these other uh, living organisms that are in there. They like getting up inside that carbon structure. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important? Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the life, you know, if you have the housing available, then the then the life really starts to, to, to move in and, uh, and and multiply. So anytime that that life, I don't know, it seems like the more and more we're learning is that our farmers are actually more microbe ranchers uh, than they are farmers in many ways, where they're 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 ranching their microbes and the and the microbes are in turn giving them the soil health to to produce the crop. So I, I kind of look at like to look at it that way. Didn't Gabe Brown say something like that? I'm not sure if Gabe did or not. I just, I, I, I just, you start thinking about it and it's like, you know, it's really true. You're, you're kind of a micro brancher if you're a really good, a good farmer. Like dung beetles are employee of the month now for about four years running. Yeah. 
Absolutely. You know, we, we see a lot of guys that are, that are starting to feed biochar that are also getting into dung beetles. And that's one of kind of the neat aspects that we hadn't really even focused on. And nobody's done research on this yet, but we're, we're pretty sure that feeding the biochar reduces the pat toxicity. We've, uh, there's Dr. Goosey Hayes from up at Montana State. He's kind of a dung uh, beetle specialist, and we've had some discussions about this, how if you're you know, trying to get your animals off the wormers and, and detoxify those pats so that they're more appealing to the dung beetles and they're not going to kill the dung beetles, that this is another interesting aspect. But, yeah, once those dung beetles start burying the, uh, the manure and the biochar, uh, that's when things get really exciting for the soil. So – I, I dodged this earlier when you asked me if I'd been feeding biochar to my cows. So for the last 45 days or so, I've had biochar mixed with the mineral, incorporated some uh, 42-way milpa seed that I got from green cover. So the theory is we've got seeds, biochar going through the rumen, and they're going to be incorporated perfectly, encapsulated in fertilizer. So I love this. A natural manure seed coating. Everything's experimental. I think I've used uh, about 10 or 15 pounds of seed total um, in this operation. And I know, and I know the areas where we've done it. So it'll be interesting to watch as the summer comes to, to kind of travel those areas and see if I have just random squash and, popcorn and turnips out in the pasture yeah that, that's, so that's gonna be really neat really neat I, i'm excited to see to, to see the results of that i know the video i had quite a few people on the facebook page they were kind of like what is this guy doing exactly but i've seen the, that, that similar uh using cattle and their manure to to seed areas in uh, like national forests where they have burn areas i've seen that done before um, i'm not exactly sure how successful it was but i i know that some similar thoughts have been system that that uh that it seems perfectly plausible so what are what are some of the things that biochar does to the room besides remove toxicity you know this is one of the things that we're really interested in and in, in learning more about there there just hasn't been a whole lot of research done on this so far um the research that we've done with, with the university of nebraska their focus is really on trying to reduce methane um mm. So that's really what they're monitoring. They have these special head boxes where they are monitoring uh, 23 hours a day what's coming out of the animal's mouth, and then they have entire barns where they can actually monitor the entire for the the entire herd and see what kind of uh, methane reductions they're getting or not getting. But uh, so to, to answer your question, we're not exactly sure. We know that there's something to it. We know that the amount of biochar that we're feeding the animals isn't enough to actually absorb the methane because we're just talking about very small amounts. So there's, right. some, there's another mechanism uh, at, at work there. And, uh, you know, there's smart people uh, like Dr. Andrea Watson there at the University of Nebraska that they're, they're going to be doing their third B trial uh, this summer, kind of trying to understand this. But, again, I think we need to get, you know, more focus on some of these other aspects, like you said, looking at the changes in the rumen fluid and not so much just the methane, because there's a lot more to it than just the methane, I think. Well, there's the methane and then, you know, down that whole rabbit trail would be all the microbes that that live in the rumen that do the hard work that that actually feed the animal and and unlocking how those all function together. I think we're just just on the edge of starting to fall down there and and really go down that rabbit hole. 
No, absolutely. I, I, I think we're on the right path there. I think it's kind of the same story with dung beetles. It's like we're just – we barely scratched the surface. Like I was shocked talking to some of the researchers. We still don't even really know what dung beetles exist in each state. It's just – it's mind-boggling how, how we haven't done some – but it's also exciting that, that we do have people that are starting to kind of uh, open some of these closed doors and, uh, and find out what's going on. How did you get involved with biochar? Tell us more well, about you, your story, Rowdy. You know, I, I got involved with biochar. I lived over in Shadron, Nebraska, and believe it or not, Nebraska actually has some national forests. People, uh, the western part of the states, it's kind of like Kansas, right. it has, it has a few different sides, but um, the western part of the state, it's different. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of wood there. I was seeing that was just getting piled up. You know, uh, pine getting piled up and just burned during the winter. And I just thought, wow, there's got to be a better use for it than this. And when I kind of first heard about biochar. I was, you know, the light bulb kind of went off for me and it was like, oh, wow, this is kind of my, my way to make a difference. I'm kind of a pyromaniac of sorts. So I like playing with fire and I was one of those kind of, kind of guys that enjoyed fire and, and, uh, and that aspect of it. So I think that, you know, was really more of a wood utilization side, I would say more than anything was kind of what me, what got me interested in biochar. And um, I was able to get hooked up with the Nebraska Forest Service. So they, and uh, the Kansas Forest Service is part of this too. We started the Great Plains Biochar Initiative, so it was a those two forest services and us got some USDA funding to do some education on biochar in the Kansas and Nebraska region. Um, so you guys, I don't know if you ever crossed paths with any of the workshops that took place. I know that uh, they did several down in Kansas, um, one in Shadron, Nebraska, and I think a couple in the eastern part of the state of Nebraska. But that's kind of what got me started, uh, I guess, with down the biochar wormhole. Well, great. So tell us about High Plains Biochar and how you guys kind of started and where you're at now. Yeah, you know, um, we started out, like I said, in Shadron, Nebraska, kind of focused on wood utilization. Um, we were looking at using uh, post peeling waste where they make fence posts there, where they peel fence posts out of the pine. And uh, so they make a lot of, uh, of, of waste wood doing that. So we kind of started out... Um, you know, like a lot of biochar enthusiasts do with 55-gallon drums and stove pipe and uh, whatever other metal, scrap metal you can find laying around and watching. It's like moonshine. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that. There's, there's endless amounts of YouTube videos uh, of people that, that have done different, uh, tried, tried different contraptions and things. Um, one neat thing that I kind of had an advantage on that was I have a fabrication background. Um, so when you can weld and do some of these other things, it gives you a little bit of an advantage when you start tinkering with homemade biochar equipment and that sort of thing. So uh, once I got the biochar bug, I started kind of building uh, homemade biochar contraptions, but I eventually went ahead and purchased a commercial biochar producing equipment uh, in 2017 and started producing uh, biochar there in Shadron. We started doing uh, different uh, research projects through kind of their wood utilization programs. Hey, so how is biochar made? You mentioned you have a, a big commercial process machine so so walk us through how how it's made kind of with your process and maybe you can also talk about um what an on-farm process would look like uh yeah you know basically when you're making biochar you're cooking wood chips uh in simple terms um you're cooking these things it's called pyrolysis so you're cooking them in the absence of oxygen um so you're basically heating things up to oh, between 1,000 and 1,500 degrees, kind of depending on the type of biochar that you're making. 
And uh, in the absence of oxygen, we're burning off all the wood gas uh, and all the other volatiles. And what you're left with is almost pure carbon. Um, so this equipment here, like I have one set up uh, here at, at High Plains Biochar where we heat a shop building and we heat uh, a house that's on site here and heat a greenhouse. Um, so we take this, take this wood waste, we uh, run it through a hammer mill first to get it uniform. Sometimes when our wood chips come in, there's a lot of odd-sized pieces in there, so I like to run it through a hammer mill to get it where it will run through augers and uh, grain handling type equipment. Um, so basically, it gets fed in, cooked at this uh, set temperature that, that we uh, desire. Um, we you know, absorb the heat. We, we use a liquid heat exchanger here so we can pipe the heated water uh, wherever we need it. Um, and then uh, the other stream that you come out with there is your biochar. So and it produces somewhere between about a third and a half by volume. So if you are going to run a, a cubic yard of wood chips in a day, you'll get about half a cubic yard of biochar somewhere around there. And it loses a lot of weight, too. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Once you get rid of all the moistures and the turpentines and a lot of uh, when you when you when you're down to just the uh, just the carbon, uh, there's definitely not a lot of weight there to it. It's really interesting how the biochar can absorb moisture while it's sitting in bags. Um, if you get a rainy week and have a real high humidity, that that bag of biochar can gain you know even fifty or hundred pounds just sitting there. It's it's quite amazing how good that stuff is at holding moisture. I figured out real fast you can't shovel it into a mineral tub and put it in the back of your side by side and go down the road at forty miles an hour and inspect expect any of it to be there when you get to the pasture. So Absolutely. I learned <laughs> so I learned that you need to wet that stuff down <laughs> to hold it down so it'll stay in the tub. And the cows, they don't mind if it's wet, soggy or what. No, we have a lot of guys that, that, that do that. They just add moisture to it. Uh, that seems to work really well. There is this one specific feeder that I think I've actually sent to you, but because your animals have horns, it's a, it's an issue for them. But there is one that works really well in the wind if you don't want to have to pre-treat anything because the wind out here in Wyoming, it is horrendous. So it, it uh, you definitely need to weigh it down. I think I, I think what would work really well is, actually, you know, like absorbing the salt into the biochar First, because the salt or the mineral or something, it would it would absorb it really well, and it would also give it some weight. Like I haven't really mixed. Like when I mix it, I I don't wet the biochar down. I kind of layer it in there, um, and then when I get out to the pasture, I mix it up. And I, I'm sure we lose some to the wind, but I didn't think it would be that great of an idea to get my mineral package wet with the biochar i thought that just might make some weirdness but i can see where maybe wetting the biochar down and then throwing the salt mineral in and stirring it up might be might be a better deal yeah i i, I think there's definitely a lot of different ways to go about exactly how to blend that we keep trying to figure out you know it's kind of like with the seed coating it's like how how's this really going to work out and you know as far as like applying biochar out to a field that's a whole nother step and it gets complicated where if you can just apply it as a seed coating, it's not. And, and I think we're trying to figure out the same thing with the free range cattle. Like what's just the easiest way to do this that doesn't require extra work, extra steps. And uh, I, I think that with you guys testing this out and kind of trying different things, that's what we're kind of hoping to find out is to see kind of what works and what doesn't. So I think it's kind of a, a good time to segue you into a question we got from the ranching reboot paddock from Michael Kinsey, and he wants to know how viable of a tool is biochar for soil regeneration from a cost versus gain standpoint. And 
I'm not sure what he means when he says gain, whether he's talking about pounds gained or carbon gain in the soil. So what what do you have that could address that? You know, I, I, I think that's that, that, it's a great question because it always comes down to economics. And um, as far as what I've observed in the industry is there's not a lot of farmers who are just going to go buy a bunch of biochar. It's still pretty expensive uh, to just go buy it. And that's where I really feel like that the on-farm biochar production is really the direction uh, that, that we're going to go, um, where a lot of these guys – they have some either wood waste, at least in this area, a lot of them have wood waste available nearby or on their ranch or farm, or they have some other type of crop residue, a hemp residue, a corn residue, oat holes, something that is not being used uh, that they could burn and turn into biochar. And I think that's that's where the real opportunity is um, for these guys to, to clean up a mess, utilize some heat, heat a greenhouse, heat a shop building and create this stream of biochar that they can feed, they can add to their soil. And then we're going to kind of take that one step further for the guys that are really serious about this and want to produce some quantities of biochar and, and actually market those carbon credits for the biochar that's being produced. So you're saying that there's a market for taking invasive trees, turning them into biochar, getting the heat out, and then using the biochar to improve our soil carbon? Absolutely. What a, what a novel concept. That could maybe save the Great Plains. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really interesting how you go from region to region because everybody has their own like issues. Like here we have these massive forest fires in these huge lodgepole pine forests where in other areas you might have invasive cedars that just drive you nuts. And, um, you know, uh, other areas may have massive cottonwood river bottoms where they, that's their source of wood waste. So everybody kind of has their own source, but it, it seems like wherever you go, there's some sort of wood waste or other type of uh, crop residue that, that could be utilized for, to make biochar. And that's a great lead in for our next paddock question from Jeremiah Eubank. And he wants to know about portable biochar units for on-ranch production from local materials such as um, cleared brush. What does that look like? Does that look like more of a mobile unit that travels around from farm to farm, or is that something that eventually most farmers and ranchers are going to want to have to deal with their own own woody waste residue and generate their own source of biochar? You know, this, this is a really an interesting one. And I, when I started out, in fact, the, that first machine I bought, it was a 1 million BTU a unit on a 20 foot gooseneck trailer. And I was convinced that, that that was going to be the way to do it was to travel around. And I quickly realized that it just adds a lot of different complexities. Um, trying to, to run that style of equipment. Um, there are other kinds of equipment. If you're familiar with air burners, um, that, are for brush clearing, but they have added a kind of an auger system underneath um, so that you can actually uh, produce some biochar with those. And those are, those can be a good option for some applications. Kind of the, the challenge there is that the, what, the biochar that you produce is really big and chunky and you don't have a lot of control over the temperature. So you can end up with pieces that may have unburned parts in the middle and the biochar is big, so you still kind of need to break it down before it's usable. You can't run it through any kind of an equipment. So um, there, there is equipment like that out there. Um, like I said, air burners are kind of, they make a little, a small trailer and then a really large one that's like half a million dollars that on tracks for driving up. They use them a lot here, like in the, in the forests for just for clearing uh, material. But 
they were really intended just to burn things down to ash really fast. And so they will make biochar, but it's, it's, it's not a perfect science, I guess, going that route. Um, it seems like what, what always ends up happening is that it, you, you come back to going from the portable idea to having a, you know, a unit where you can actually utilize the heat for some other purpose and have, you know, that doing that mobile just is, is, makes things really complicated. And that's kind of the direction we're going. We feel like that I've, you know, been doing this for a while and ran across plenty of farms and ranches where they have these materials available and they want to try biochar. And I think that's kind of the opportunity there um, where they're not necessarily going to go out and, you know, buy a semi-load of biochar just to try out. But if they could make it on their own farm, then they, then they would. So without a lot of fancy equipment, how, how could one make biochar at home? Or on uh, you can make biochar at home with nothing more than just uh, just a hose. Uh, you can make a pile of brush. Uh, I've, I've done this many times. And a nice dry pile of brush, you light it at the top, which is really, it, it doesn't make sense because we're used to thinking, oh, we light it on the bottom. But actually light it on the top and it won't smoke mm-hmm. really as much. And as that burns down through there, uh, it will uh, convert a lot of that material into, into biochar. And then you just have to stop the process at the very end uh, with like a garden hose uh, before it turns to ash. But anybody can make some biochar at home with, with, with no, no special tools. It's just the reality is that biochar is kind of chunky and it's not perfect, but you, you, uh, there's also no uh, investment there. So I, that's what I do with my, my waste here on site. If I don't have a chipper handy to use, I'll just pile it up and, and do that myself. And then I just throw it in my compost piles. I think that's that's how a lot of people get started is just making a little biochar at home. You can try it out that way. It's super simple. Uh, the, the challenge here is in, in this part of the world, you can't burn outside very often just because things, it would yeah. like fire, fire danger like 10 months out of the year now. And uh, Poor Californians. So, yeah. It's, you have I'm to thinking be, like, oh, they should definitely do that for to manage the forests in California. I'm like, oh no, they probably won't because of air quality issues or something like that. Now, biochar is really big out in California. They they have state support for biochar. They've approved it as a feed supplement at the state level as well, um, mm-hmm. and they fund a lot of biochar and wood utilization projects. So they they really have gotten on board. They also, you know, like the there's one biochar producer. It's the first biochar producer in the United States that sold carbon credits out there, Pacific biochar. Um, so they're, they're definitely uh, kind of ahead of the game as far as biochar goes out there, but they do have their own uh, other challenges. We'll say. So I guess a question I'm, I'm going to just ask it because I was like, do I ask this or not? So, so we're working with carbon ranches or storing carbon. And one thing someone has asked is, is, is there a way to cheat the system when you're doing like measurements, is it just like applying biochar everywhere and and manipulating uh, you know their land that way to get better results? And I, I wonder what you thought about that because I've, I've heard that a few t- few times. People who are like signed carbon contracts and, and selling their carbon um, as far as a way to kind of game the system because if they're measuring actual soil carbon accrual. Is, is biochar that way to beat the system or, or do you think that the, the something else? Oh, I mean, biochar will definitely increase your soil carbon. It's the, the, yeah, the, but it's true, fast. right? It's truly increasing the carbon, right? Or is, but is the, know, is, like, is the cost benefit ratio going to be there? I guess is, yeah. is the question. Is you know, the cost I, of the biochar plus application going to be worth the cost of the credit? 
um, the the credit is more like a bonus. I, I guess mm-hmm. I'll put it that way. What we're seeing so far on the carbon credit market for biochar is between one hundred and one hundred and fifty dollars per ton. Mm-hmm. So the biochar is a premium carbon credit. What you're what you saw like when Microsoft bought carbon credits this time around, more than half of them didn't pass their smell test. Essentially, right. that were they were questioning the the methodology, and that's really the neat thing about biochar is you can see it, you can weigh it, you can test it. It's not pointing out at a field and saying, see all that carbon we stored with those crops. And so it's a little bit different in that sense. So you actually get a three to one multiplier on the, on that. So for one ton of biochar, you get three tons of carbon. Credits. And it's drawn down, right? Drawn down from the root system. Not, it's not from the actual biochar in the soil. Uh, the biochar in the soil it c- c- contributes to that as well. Right. Okay. But yeah, I mean, as far as the, the, the double counting and stuff, I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure. I, I don't. I'm not. I don't follow exactly what like Indigo Ag is doing with the. It's flight. really oh. new. It's new, right? So there's not yeah. a lot of yeah. And by the, the time we release this in three weeks, it'll be probably completely different anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. The, the the way we're going to focus on this is we're going to we're going to document and verify the biochar production um, that through our equipment through our remote monitoring system. So we're going to be able to confirm uh, how much that equipment ran. With, with the customer to, to, to really provide the buyer of those yeah. carbon credits uh, some ease of mind. And so we're, and we're also going to be bringing in a third party uh, to, to, to verify those carbon credits. So it's really uh, about being transparent, but you're right. There are always going to be people that try to buck the system, I'm sure. But yeah, what- yeah. And I'm not really worried about that because you're just going to have, you know, shoplifters at grocery stores all the time, right? So it's like that's something that happens. But and I really don't think ranchers really do that kind of stuff. I mean, there's definitely outliers. But I don't want it to negate the quality of the credit. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? It's like I've seen some press lately and they're like, this is, a, this is not even a, a credit. Like this should not even be called a credit because – X, Y, and Z, and they think it's it's just uh, smoke and mirrors. Yeah, biochar normally from what from from the things that I've seen, biochar doesn't really fall into those categories. Just Good. because it's very different. You're seeing a lot. I know the last article I read was about planting mangroves, and you know a couple of the science yeah. were kind of coming up and saying, you know, I'm not so sure that this is really <laughs> what you're saying it is. Uh, and that's kind of the neat thing about the biochar. You can even do the testing on it, where it only degrades about three tenths of one percent. Uh, over uh, over a hundred years, so basically, what, what what they're doing in Europe is that you you sequester like two thousand and fifty pounds or whatever the math is to where it's a one hundred year carbon credit with the biochar as well. Where these other carbon credits, they can't guarantee that because that tree could die next year, or get cut down, and within a few years, it's released all its carbon back to the atmosphere. So that's kind of one of the neat things that this, this biochar will still be in the, in the soil thousands of years from now. I mean, that's what our scientists are finding down in, in the, from the Amazonians. They're still testing biochar that was applied 3000 years ago, uh, which is just fascinating. But once you get it, that biochar, uh, that carbon hot like that, it really turns it into a stable form of carbon where it doesn't, doesn't go away. And that's why biochar is getting more and more accepted as a climate mitigation strategy. So, We've talked a little bit about soil testing and results. Do you have any uh, soil carbon test results that you would, you'd like to share with us? Um, you know, specifically, normally what, what most of the, 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 the testing, believe it or not, most of the testing you see done with biochar is about yield. 
uh, is not necessarily about measuring the, the changes in soil carbon. Um, we're still kind of, I would say, behind on that in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. As far as that goes, there have been a couple of long-term studies out of Australia that got into the soil carbon and how adding biochar uh, accelerated the, the uh, soil carbon growth. Um, it, but we haven't necessarily seen that in the United States. So I, I would like to see more of these long-term tests done so that we kind of know, because I think that's with a lot of the things that, that uh, these regenerative agriculture folks are doing, they're, they're not two-year benefits or one-year benefits. They're 20, 30, 50, 100-year type benefits. So you really need to be thinking long-term um, with, with how that works. And, and part of that is doing that, the, the testing long-term so that we, we do know exactly how that works. But um, <clears throat> I, th- I definitely think that's, you know, kind of the, the challenge is just catching up here in the United States. Um, like, yeah, you know, I was, I was blown away the other day. I was reading an article and I guess a lot of the, the, the pellet production in the Southeast United States actually gets shipped over to Europe because they do a lot of their power generation with, with pellets. So it just, some of the stuff you just kind of have to shake your head. I'm sure that we'll probably be doing that in five or 10 years. We'll start seeing our, our coal power, power plants converted over into uh, biomass and some of these other sources and then making biochar while we're producing electricity will, will follow shortly like it is over there. And um, so that's kind of the neat thing is we can kind of look at what's going on in Europe to get an idea of, of what works here. But um, as far as like changes in your soil, like feeding, um, I, I know the Doug Powell, uh, that study, they've done quite a bit of soil testing in his place. One of the interesting things about him is he has a really low cost source of biochar available. So he, feeds enormous amounts of biochar to his animals. Uh, it's, it's mind-boggling, but he's been able to really make some really drastic changes uh, in his soil carbon uh, over a very fairly short period of time. But I wish I had some really good data to tell you on that, but unfortunately I, I, uh, I do not. Oftentimes anecdotes are just as truthful as hard research. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny though, because it made, as soon as you said that, I thought, you know, that's interesting because almost every study I've ever seen on biochar, they're looking at like, how much, uh, you know, what was the yield change in the crop that you were growing? Nobody really uh, focused that much on what, what the, the changes in the soil health overall, which I, I guess that's kind of a, I guess that shows kind of maybe how, how we need to change our way of thinking a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, it, if you want, we can go down that rabbit trail of, of what biochar can do for crop yields. Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to talk about this. I mean, I, 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 I think, all the uses and all the uses and benefits of biochar. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, what, c- kind of what I see going is that you can use biochar. It, it works out really well for the higher value crops like cannabis in Colorado. They use the heck out of biochar and that, but they're also the amount of money that they're making on those crops oh, yeah. <laughs> is completely different than what a soybean farmer in Nebraska is getting. And th- that's, that's kind of where, what I am seeing is using biochar as a seed coating over a long period of time. It doesn't add any additional steps to the process. It doesn't add a significant cost uh, to the process. You can get some really neat benefits with having the biochar right next to the seed. So that's kind of where I see the future going is a seed that has some fertilizer and, and some biology at a seed coating with fertilizer and biology added to it used uh, you know, in very small amounts over a long period of time. To, to change soil health. What I, what I don't really see being the case is people bringing in semi loads of biochar per acre and just applying, you know, five to $10,000 per acre worth of biochar 
on their crops. I, I don't see that being being right. There. Okay. Put those fears to bed then. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just we, we have to be reasonable about what, you know, so what works for a specialty, a, a you know, a farmer's market uh, and a greenhouse operator down in Colorado, you know, they, what, what works for them is much different than, than other situations. So I think trying to figure out what works for each person's operation and that, you know, maybe feeding biochar for the ranch uh, is, is a better situation for some people. And over time, you can certainly build soil health and increase your dung beetle population and increase your animal health and utilize some of the waste that you've got on your farm and that sort of thing. I'm interested to see what it will do for our water systems too, since, you know, everyone talks about all the nutrients that leach into their waterways, um, just retaining those, right? That was, that yeah, was a big one. I, I kind of think that's going to be a big one too. I mean, kind of, uh, we've done a little bit of work with it. We've had one professor at the university of Nebraska that he didn't seem to, to share my vision in this, but I, I, I kind of envision using biochar waddles placed, uh, you know, at the outlets and, you know, specific areas on farms where they can capture some of those nutrients. Um, and you're even starting to see some of those waddles just, they're just taking them directly to the ponds and the lakes where there are all these algae blooms and things going on. Because the truth is that's all that's fertilizer in there. And if you can capture that in the biochar and get it perfectly charged, it's, I mean, that's a great way to, to charge that biochar before you apply it. And that's one of the things that you do have to kind of be careful with about biochar is that it's, it's a carbon sponge and it's really, really powerful. So you don't want to just apply a whole bunch of it to, uh, to, to your soil, especially if, if there's not a lot of biology or life in that soil already. Uh, because it can just it, it can starve those those plants of you know things like nitrogen that first year because it's really good at grabbing them. So if you can charge that biochar ahead of time, uh, what we do a lot is just blend it with manure. Uh, which okay. We, yeah. Uh, Hot chicken litter. Oh yeah. gosh, yeah, that's the best. The chickens love it too. I we, see. I have a little research farm here, so we have a, a small little herd of chickens, and we have a chicken tractor that we play around with, and uh, we try a lot of different uh, uh, different things that we preach around here, I guess. So one of my other ones is we grow in wood chips. So I just built a big bed out here. So I take a bunch of wood chips, a little bit of biochar and a little bit of manure and mix it all up. And, uh, and we actually grow things in that. Our soil here in Laramie is just horrible, like a pH of about eight. There's almost no organic matter. Hardly anything will grow here. We get eight inches of rain a year. It's just, it's just, just not good conditions. So I've gone to just just growing in these raised uh, wood chip beds, and it works out really well. The worms really love it. Um, so you, we always see worms the second year, and it just uh, it, it seems to be a really interesting way to utilize a lot of the wood waste that we have around here as well. Probably all kinds of interesting mycorrhizal fungi going on in there, and eating the wood and transporting nutrients around, and all kinds of good stuff. There is, Brian. You wouldn't believe the amount of mushrooms that we get in the variety of mushrooms. It's really, really fascinating the amount uh, the amount of, of, of fungi life that you see in those wood chips. But no, you're absolutely right. But it's like finding a decaying tree out in the forest. There's always mushrooms and a lot of a lot of biology kind of going on in that soil around there. I, something tells me that the mushrooms break down the trees to feed the soil. I don't know, just just kind of an idea that I'm getting. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the really interesting things when we do this in the beds is they shrink because they're composting all the time. So I'll, if like two years ago we grew corn, and by the end of the year the corn couldn't even hardly stand up because the, the, 
the wood chips had just been shrinking the entire summer uh, around the roots. So the roots were exposed. It was actually pretty interesting, but um, th that definitely shows you what's that there's a lot of activity going on when you can see that the pile's getting, you know, maybe lost six inches over the summer. We, we kind of experienced some similar things here with the gardens, uh, little garden patches that we put in last year. So oh, yeah. 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 Let's uh, let's circle back and talk about chickens and biochar. That's I haven't even heard of that one yet. So let's talk about your chickens and biochar. How do they eat it, and and, and what? Oh, differences? are they eating it? Oh yeah, yeah. The the, the chickens love it. Uh, they 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 like it. They, they just eat it. We just throw it out on the ground, and they'll they'll go right for it. Um, so it's it's not an issue for them. You know, you're seeing it there. I think it soaks up the ammonia. Um, you know, I think there's some, some benefits there. Um, I'm sure that it holds the nutrients in the manure and it does some other things, but that's another one of those that nobody has done a big, uh, a big research trial on feeding, you know, biochar to poultry. And I, I think, you know, as much as I hate to say it, that I, one of the biggest reasons is there's not a bunch of profit in it for any of these corporate ag companies. And so nobody's going to do that kind of research. Not quite a magic bullet of soil health in a box you can sell at the farm store, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. But it's, uh, you know, it's something big. Uh, we're already seeing, I know there was a company in Colorado, they're adding biochar to the, the pelletized uh, uh, chicken litter uh, fertilizer. So I think that combining the two uh, can certainly be a, a great use. But, um, you know, the chickens love it. You don't have to add anything to it. We just put it out free choice for them, and they, they will definitely go right for it. That's wild. I'm going to have to bring a bucket home tomorrow for the chickens. I was going to say, did we just, did we just open up another business branch? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. So well, I, I think that we're going to start seeing the biochar used a lot more in the, on the animal side. And again, this isn't anything that we're creating here. This is just what we're seeing in Europe, what we're seeing in Australia, what we're already seeing in Canada. It's just, they lead the way. Yeah. yeah we're, we're, we're kind of just catching up in many ways. So if we've got to catch up, Jeff Goodwin wants to know, is biochar a scalable solution? How scalable is biochar? Um, th th that's another great question. I used to think that, that the way to, to do biochar was to build a giant plant and truck a whole bunch of wood into that plant. And I've kind of come full circle where I think I don't think that's the best way to go about this. I think that the best way to do biochar is on a local level. And like you say, that's a little bit of a challenge to scale that on a local level. And I kind of think that's where the co-op comes in is I think that if we can combine multiple biochar producers um, and then uh, I, I think there are some benefits to kind of working as a group to either market the biochar, market the, the carbon credits associated. But I do think it's, it's scalable. Like, like I said, what we're seeing in Europe, um, I think for us, we're going to start seeing a lot of our coal-fired power plants transitioned over to biomass, and then we'll start seeing those plants in turn figure out ways to make biochar while they're producing electricity. So I think that's going to be the big scale um, uh kind of, you know, the large scale applications that we see like Oregon biochar solutions, they generate electricity uh, in making biochar. Um, so that's kind of the future I see on the, on the large scale. Um, I think we'll also see 
you know, community scale. So like cities, municipalities that have urban wood waste or after we have these huge wood storms like the city of Wichita, they just have a massive problem on their hands. So I think that we're going to see some pretty scaled up applications there uh, with, with municipal wood waste and wood utilization programs. I think we can see some fairly scaled up applications at like sawmills, some of the bigger like up in the Black Hills. I think we could see some pretty big ones there. And then a lot of these farms, I mean, some of these farms are big and have a oh, yeah. Out of waste and and uh, and are are looking for opportunities to improve their soil health and I I, I think that that it's just going to take a few of these uh, these early adopters to kind of show everybody you know kind of this uh, another option another way to go about utilizing their waste generating some heat having some biochar to feed or use for their soil and then kind of getting in this carbon credit game that seems like it's going to be the future. Yeah, I'm thinking about, like, the dairies, you know, and how they have the lagoons, uh, poop ponds, and I'm like, okay, we should put some biochar in there. Yeah, that's really the, yeah. the best way. The dairies are the neat ones, too, because for the feedlots and stuff, it, it takes a full cycle to really see the benefit. And when you feed biochar to at a dairy, within a week, you start seeing the milk. In, in, in oh, cream. really? Absolutely. So it's, we have a couple of dairies that, that feed it. and Sending all my dairy help. guys to you now, Rowdy. <laughs> They're, they're, it's really neat. We've actually got some composters, you know, out in Eastern Colorado and another one here in Wyoming that compost the dairy manure. So they're trying to convince those guys to start adding biochar, but they're going to, a couple of those guys are actually going to be putting in units, start producing biochar and then adding it to their composting operations so that, that, that they sell to their organic farmers. Okay. So, so what's the feedback when you talk to, to people, do they think you're crazy if they know, know nothing about it or do they usually already know about it before they talk to you? It depends what state you're in, yeah. um, but believe it or not, in Wyoming, we're like, Wyoming's kind of anti-biochar in many ways, So, and uh, but if you get around other places where people are a little bit more progressive and maybe have, have heard about cover crops or, you know, uh, no-till or, you know, something like that. Uh, then Some of those things that have, don't work here, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Woo! Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's pretty, um, it's interesting kind of seeing how... Uh, you know, the different approaches by state, but there's definitely areas where people have been exposed to it and they want to try biochar. They're interested in it and they're just trying to kind of figure out how to incorporate it into their operation in a way that makes financial sense. I think that's kind of the feedback I'm getting from people. So where can we go on social media or on the internet to find you and get touch with you and learn more about biochar? Uh, yeah, we've got our website. Uh, it's uh, hpbiochar.com. Uh, that's our website. We also have a Facebook page. If you just search for uh, High Plains Biochar, you'll find us there. Um, there's quite a few other, um, if you're really interested in biochar, there are some other Facebook uh, groups uh, uh, that, that kind of focus on biochar, kind of like some of the Kansas, Nebraska soil stewardship health groups are. But um, So there's definitely some good resources out there um, to, for, for more information. But uh, we're, we will have our, our new biochar co-op website uh, will be up probably within about a week. Uh, we're, we're trying to get that launched. But those are the, those are the best ways to get a hold of us. Well, great. Thanks. So what, uh, who have been your biggest mentors in ag? Um, you know, that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, one of the first guys that, that I've, I've worked quite a bit with is Larry Cundle. Um, he, he ranches over here in Glendo, Wyoming. Um, he's, 
he was actually part of kind of our video that we did with that American Association for the Advancement of Science. They came out and filmed here back in 2019 um, for a week, and we went out to his ranch. And uh, he's he's one of those kind of more progressive Wyoming producers, um, and uh, he's really active in the state and kind of the agriculture community. And he he really helped kind of get me started, um, and kind of helped helped bring me into the Wyoming agriculture community. But um, other guys, um, Del Fike has been another guy that I've kind of worked with over the years. And it's been fun to watch, follow his path and kind of the direction that yeah. he's going. And uh, he, uh, he he's definitely uh, was one of our guys that tried feeding biochar in the very beginning. And I just, I love keeping up with what Del has going on because you just know, you know, it's going to be exciting. Um, so I, I know one of the, the last things that I was visiting with those guys about is uh, we have a producer, um, and I hope it's okay if I go off on a little bit of this stuff, but we have a producer up in Billings, Montana, that feeds worm castings to his cattle. So if you really want a progressive idea. Go and, on. I'm listening. Well, and, and so I was talking to Dell uh, oh, a couple months ago about this, and he starts asking me about feeding uh, worm castings. So it sounds like that that there are that's kind of maybe one of the other new things that, that some of these progressive guys are really looking at is feeding worm castings and the biology in the worm castings and what that can do. Um, you know, my first thought was to take worm casting tea and add it to the bio bar. Oh. Um, and then feed the biochar, but um, it, it's it's one of those ideas that I had never considered feeding worm castings to an animal. But I guess there are people doing it with success. Is, is worm casting or are worm castings easy to harvest? Like. Uh, yeah, they have a, they, it's, it's kind of like a composting operation. They typically run it through like a tumbler. Um, so, okay. Um, so that they separate out any of the it you know, separates out easy then okay so like a screening or whatever yeah they screen it essentially but yeah that was kind of my first thought too because sometimes it kind of depends what what you're feeding the worms as well if you're feeding the worms stuff that has you know rocks and stuff in it then it wouldn't work because you wouldn't want your livestock eating anything or where does right yeah <laughs> but and that, that's kind of where I was thinking well if you just added the the compost tea to the biochar then you don't have any issues but uh, again that's just I think we're finding out that this whole biology thing is just more important than we ever realized and that uh, that there's a lot of different ways to go about uh you know getting the benefits to the animal to the soil uh to the dung beetles whatever you know kind of whatever your focus is worm castings feeding worm castings to cows that that one's totally new learn something <laughs> new every day never stop <laughs> learning yeah, well, who knows? In five years, it might it might be the latest craze. But I was trying to think of other guys that I've I've you know kind kind of worked with over the years um, that um, that helped kind of get me into this. You know, I think uh, outside of the ag world, you know, some of the folks that like the Nebraska Forest Service have been really helpful as kind of you know pushing me into this. But uh, the uh, the regenerative ag world is definitely a it's definitely a neat place. I love getting on Facebook and looking through the, the posts, what everybody's got going on and, you know, kind of like your feeding biochar and seed project or seeing what, uh, what kind of crimper somebody's trying out on their cover crop, or it's just neat seeing what everybody's trying. I, I think we just have to keep pushing the envelope and being citizen and producer scientists and try it. I mean, what, what's mm-hmm. the worst that's going to happen? We got to try things because what we've been doing hasn't necessarily been working. 
No, I think it, it worked good enough to get by for a while, and we're, we're figuring out that it, that it wasn't a long-term solution and that it's not doing us favors as far as our soil health and our, our body's health and a lot of the other things that, uh, that, are, that are going on there. But, you know, I, I think it's also uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to help farmers and ranchers to just win because it seems like every time you turn around, the meatpacking plants are sticking it to the, the farmer and rancher or something else has gone on and it just doesn't seem to work out and it's frustrating to watch, I guess. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know it'll be three weeks, like about three weeks before this airs. Just a few minutes before we got on this interview, it came across that the Packers averaged $1,076 per head profit today. Like, uh, that's terrible. I hope, I hope by the time this comes out, things are better. But so, so there's probably some rich people in South America somewhere, I guess, huh? Oh, uh, yeah. So, but we're really lucky here. We actually have a meat packing plant that just went in a USDA packing plant in the last year, just about two miles from me. And, oh, really? Uh, really nice. 307 Meats, the, the first USDA facility in Wyoming. They were really pushing. Wyoming's pushing hard right now to try to get some other options because these guys don't have any options. They have to truck it to Greeley. So we're li- literally trucking trucking out of state just to process. Love meat. to hear it. Yep. And losing value the whole way. So – Let's just put Rowdy in charge. Rowdy, I'm going to give you a magic lamp with a genie, and he is going to give you one wish. You can do with that wish whatever you want. You can be in charge of whatever you want. Make one one big sweeping decision. What are you going to do? Uh, I'm going to have an army of farms and ranches across the United States that are all producing biochar on their farms and uh, utilizing waste streams, improving their soil health, growing food, and uh, figuring out how to, uh, to to make these guys some money on the carbon credits that they're that they're generating through their biochar production. That's that that, that would truthfully be my dream. My big deal is to make a difference. Um, so that's uh, we, we kind of got into that in the last video that I did for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. But I mean, I'm I'm here to leave a, a legacy, not to not to try to 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 generate a fortune and buy a mega yacht or anything like that. Can we do both? <laughs> I mean, I, there I can see the appeal of a mega yacht. Don't get me wrong, but then I can also see the tremendous energy and fuel bill behind it, and I yeah, kind of maintenance. Yeah, don't I don't maybe if somebody else is paying for that, I'd go enjoy it once in a while. So there you go. But no, I, I think that that would be my dream. You know, I, I really like working with farmers and ranchers. It's been funny. Um, I, we got accepted into what's called the G Beta Business Accelerator Program, and we've had to kind of go round and round and looking at different aspects of high plains biochar. And one of the things that we've really come back to is that I just really like working with farmers and ranchers, and that's kind of one, one of the things that I'm good at. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's 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 really my focus through all this is to, to try to do that even more. Is that, uh, would you say that motivates you to get out of bed in the morning or is it something else? No, absolutely. I, I, I get excited about agriculture. Like I'm, I'm crazy. Like my little research farm here, I don't, I only have just, a, just over an acre, but I get after it. We, we, we grow all kinds of corn up here at 7,000 feet in elevation. And so I, I like understanding, you know, kind of the, what, what, what the producers are up against. And uh, I, I like kind of my, you know, being my little mini farm here to kind of understand a little bit of that, just a small fraction of what you guys are actually dealing with in the real world. So do you have a list of amazing hacks and cheat codes? Unfortunately, I do not. <laughs> up, up, down, down, left, right. I don't know. I can't do it anymore. 
<laughs> so, is there anything you wish you would have known on day one? Um, I guess you know, I, I think uh, from when I started out with high plains biochar, I. I didn't quite understand, I guess, the whole regenerative agriculture world. I was more focused on just the wood utilization side. So I think that's that's probably something from the beginning. I wish I kind of understood that when I when I got started. Then I think I could have put together the pieces of the puzzle a little bit sooner than I have now. Because uh, it's taken me a while. I would say I've just been more kind of like treading water the last couple of years, just kind of waiting to see what was happening with the industry and kind of the direction things were going. And um, and now I finally feel like I, I, I know what I need to do here as far as, you know, creating, you know, this equipment for these guys uh, to start creating their own biochar. But there are, you know, some other equipment options out there. There's, it's just pretty limited. And that's, you know, when I started looking to produce biochar, that's what I ran into was that there just isn't a lot of options. So what would be some advice you'd have for somebody wanting to get started either building a biochar business or making biochar for their own use on, on the farm? That's a great question. Um, you know, if, if you were looking to start, you know, to start producing your own biochar and selling it, um, I think that getting involved, um, you know, with the, the local regenerative agriculture community is going to be, you know, going to be your number one priority. Start attending those meetings, get hooked up with guys like you and Josh and, and Dell and uh, a lot of these other guys that are doing innovative things um, and try to, so that way you can kind of expose yourself to, to, to what they're trying and, and, and kind of target those people because you're really trying to find those, the early adopters, the people that are willing to try something new when no one else will and uh, trying to kind of seek out those, those people. But, um, you know, I, I would also tr try to focus on anybody that also has an interest in the game. So look at foresters, if, you know, if they have a focus on wood utilization, they may be able to help you, um, then get into like the, uh, you know, your, your local uh, farmer's market side of things, you know, maybe some of those are, are producers you can work with. So you're going to try to find, you know, those, those markets for your biochar. If you're going to, you know, say you're a, a sawmill out in the middle of Nebraska and you're, you're trying to find markets for, for your biochar, that would be my focus is trying to find local, local uses for it as close as possible. Now the farmer, he doesn't have to do that so much because he's going to utilize the biochar on site. So I think for them, it's a, uh, it's a little simpler of an operation and uh, that's kind of why I think that the co-op is going to work so well, just because you're utilizing the biochar on site, you're utilizing the waste that's on site. There's no transportation. So when you start seeing what I'm kind of seeing in the, in the carbon credit world is that they're under a lot of scrutiny to really justify what they're actually removing from the atmosphere. And I think that farmers are going to be able to make, the best case you could ever imagine um, for why their carbon credits are the best because the material wasn't hauled in. The material was already readily available. It wasn't something that they've had to go cut down and truck to town and they're using it on site. So again, there's no transportation. So I, I, I think that as we start seeing more scrutiny on the carbon credits, that these carbon credits that are produced on farm are going to very quickly rise their way to the top of that list uh, as like the best of the best. So I think that would be, you know, kind of my other focus on the, on the farm side, they're going to use it in their soil, feed it to their animals, but try to kind of uh, figure out that last income, you know, figure out how you can make carbon credits for what you're doing with your land as well. Not just biochar. The concern would be, you know, people trying to game the system or adulterating or, <laughs> you know, the, there's always going to be the bad actors that are going to try to come in and ruin it for everybody else. 
Yeah, it, it, what we see in Europe is they, there's just a whole set of checks and balances with, especially with the biochar producers, um, where if they're getting the, the the credit for producing the biochar, it's not available for for that. You know that that was already assumed that that biochar was applied at that point, and I think that's kind of the the neat thing is where if you if you're making the biochar, you can get the the, the credit directly. So it's a little different model than you know, working with like Indigo Ag and trying to get them to pay you for something that you're doing on your farm or another one of these companies that are doing carbon credits now. So that would be a direct capture using the European model for the maker of the biochar versus the person sequestering the carbon. That's exactly right. So when you when you buy a carbon credit um, from a European biochar, from a manufacturer that has gone through the EBC or the European biochar, I forget exactly what it is, um, there's only one company in the United States doing that now, and that's Pacific Biochar. But you can go on like the Carbon Future website, and you can go click on that, and they'll have six or eight different biochar manufacturers. And you can go on there and, and, and click on which one you want, and it'll tell the story about their biochar, how stable it is. And um, so that's kind of what they do. They, they go through a full audit for their supply chain. How far is your material trucked in? Where did that material come from? How far is it being trucked from there? So they, they really look at the whole carbon uh, footprint. Yeah. Okay. And I think that we'll, we'll see a similar thing done here, but there definitely are. It's funny. There's a lot of people that have asked me about that. You know, can I get it for making it and then turn around and then get it again for applying it? And I mean, maybe there would be a way to go about that, but it would also probably require forgery or lying on, on documentation. And, you know, it's kind of like organic farming, you know, at some point we do have to trust what people are, are, are uh, only on as good as the label. That's exactly, well, it's just, you know, guys, you know, does he really not put anything on his field? We don't really know that. We have to trust what he's writing and we have to believe that he's going to be truthful with us because on Tuesday night, he could have driven down there with some chemicals and dumped it. And none of us would know any different. Truth in advertising, transparency, traceability, you know, kind of a couple yeah. of reoccurring themes. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's something we kind of struggle with here in the United States. Yeah. By that South American beef that says USA on the front. Uh, don't, let's not even get started on that. I'm trying to get, uh, I'm trying to plan another Mike Calicrate episode and get Greg Gunthorpe involved too and just get those two together and just wind them well, up maybe and they let them go. Maybe they can talk about the Pause Act too. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. Did, did, did you get any, 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 did, did Mike talk about biochar at all? Cause I know he's kind of a biochar enthusiast of sorts. Uh, no, we actually didn't get into that. That was back on episode four. And man, we talked about, uh, we, we talked about the Packers, the collusion and how that was bad for the market. Um, you know, what else do we get into? Basically breaking up, decentralizing the packing plants and gotcha. doing like a mobile yeah. solder unit. And then he also talked about composting the offal. And I thought that was just so interesting. And yeah, uh, he's, he's got so many different things from uh, the food side with his bone broth and the other, uh, the, the, the cow tipping or the, or the, the <laughs> mobile cow processing and everything. But he also, he, he got into making biochar. I know they were making bone biochar out there. He had kind of this bone char. kiln. Yeah, he did mention bone char. So yeah, that bone char is kind of another interesting one because it's got a lot of calcium, a lot of phosphorus. It doesn't have the, the carbon in it, so it, it's truly an interesting product. Well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll have to get Mike back on. I don't know for a couple of them. 
Oh yeah, oh yeah. But you, you never know if you, the other another good one might be the uh, the guys that run the three hundred seven meat packing plant over here. They might be able to give you some really neat insight into uh, to what it's like starting your own meat packing business. Well, yeah, CK, we'll definitely definitely want to yes. talk to some meat packers, processors that have experienced the startup in the last eighteen months. And that, that's exactly what these guys just did. They opened last yeah. summer. CK is going to be their best friend. I want to do it in Idaho. So my husband from Idaho will hopefully be moving there in a couple of months. And eventually I want to do that there because I just, I don't want to go through the whole COVID thing again in, in their hometown. So I got you. Yeah. Very cool. So um, now Brian, I was trying to remember you, you're kind of over in the Wichita area. Is that correct? Uh, not technically in the Wichita metro area. It's about a hundred miles away. I got you. So I got you. It, I have to go there tomorrow for several doctor's appointments, and it's you know four hours for for doctor's appointments. It's just oh joy, a lot of well, money. That's, that's sneak country. I, but you know, I think about it, and I'm probably not as bad off as some people that live in further out in the weeds. You know, West Texas and New Mexico, and there's parts of Montana that are that are farther away from medical care than I am. So I'm not going to complain terribly much yeah I, I did a little project on one of ted turner's buffalo ranches up in western nebraska and, the, and the, the folks that ran that it's a two and a half hour trip to walmart one way wow and uh, so it's like just going to the store it's a, it's a once a month affair but they they load up and you know it's like an all-day affair just to go grab groceries so it, it's kind of interesting how isolated some of those places still are uh these days at walmart's 45 minutes there's a grocery store about a half hour away, about 2025. So, uh, nice. well, I, I actually went to school over there. I went to school south of you. I went in Stillwater. I went to Oklahoma State. Okay. Yeah. So I did a little growing up down in that in that area. So what's, uh, you know, I have more of a feel for kind of what's going on in Colorado and in, uh, in, in western Nebraska. Are you seeing a lot of biochar interest kind of down in your neck of the woods? Oh, I mean, I'd say people are – you know, they're, they're talking about it a little more. They're asking a few more questions. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, people are, they're, people are coming up in their interest. They're, they're getting more interested in it and how to make it and where to get it and what it does. I know that like, you know, over East of you guys there, like, you know, in Missouri, there's a couple of, of larger manufacturers, Wakefield biochar and uh, Terrachar over there. And, so I, I know I've kind of watched them and I know like in Lawrence, they've been doing some biochar work over in Lawrence, Kansas there for quite a few years. And so it seems like it's slowly, but surely growing, but I think it's a little different for you guys where it's not so much a pine utilization to avoid forest fires type situation. It's should be more of a Eastern red cedar, cedar tree removal yeah. to prevent loss of grassland biome. We Hopefully one day I'll get uh, get my friend Drac Twidwell on to talk about grassland conversion and eastern red canopy cover. So what? Uh, how does that typically work now? Are they going in and they just cut these cedars down, pile them up and burn them? Or are you guys trying to burn them while they're still really little? Uh, okay, so when we're... It, it really depends on kind of how old the infestation is, how thick it is, and and some land management. I mean, ideally you wouldn't let the, you wouldn't let the invasive trees get more than four or five feet tall. And then you only need about a foot of grass to get those on fire. Then to get your larger trees to go, you need to 
build what's called ladder fuel. So you can't just have a 40-foot-tall cedar tree with two-foot-tall grass in the bottom of it and expect that tree to light up. So you need to go maybe clear some of the smaller trees and then stuff them under the big ones or stuff them down in the canyons so you can get the heat load in there to burn down the bigger mm. trees. Um, you know, of course, there's other ways to other ways to take trees and, and make them go away, um, like an in, in-situ mulching process, like you take a mulching tractor or an excavator with a mulcher head on it, and you just shred the tree right there and leave all the biomass in place, then you don't have the, the energy involved in moving it, and you're not necessarily releasing carbon um, into the atmosphere, and the ground doesn't experience a thermal event. I got you. I got but, you. Yeah, those... But those are expensive as heck to run as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Imagine, and, right? But then on the other side, so if we wanted to just simply go cut those trees down and then move them and put them through some kind of shredding process to put them in a biochar reactor, you know, that that's still an energy investment and a time investment. No, absolutely. Absolutely. What um, – there may, depending on how close you are to communities, another good source that people will find is a lot of places, a lot of your tree services are actively trying to find places to get rid of uh, of their wood chips. And that can be another good source, not just for making biochar, but just for another uh, source of organic material. Um, so I, I don't know how that works. They have a, over here, they have what's called chip drop and you can sign up on their app and, and they, they will come and dump chips at your place. But um, I know that's definitely another source, but more for urban type wood waste. Chip drop app. I'll have to make sure I put that in the show notes. As every couple of years, the Highline contractors, the right-of-way clearers, they come by and inevitably they come into the yard and be like, hey, you got a place where we can dump a truckload of mulch? And be like, yeah, sure. How many do you want to dump? I'll take all of them. And if you mulch the pile of brush that's standing right next to my mulch pile, that'd be great. <laughs> so every couple of years we get, you know, we get a couple of truckloads of mulch. They have yet, they have yet to pick up any of my branches and chip them and add them to my pile, but that's okay. We just section that for bonfire wood or whatever. Yeah. I'm curious. One of these days I'll have to try it. If I get, get a hold of some cedars to try, try doing just a burn, an open burn with cedars and see how, how they do making biochar. I've never tried that. I've, I've mostly done pine and other, other types. Oh, the funny thing about cedar is the the very high oil content in the needles. I mean, you've seen what a uh, a pine tree crown fire looks like, or fir trees when they crown fire out. You know, you've oh, got sure. you know forty foot tall tree that's throwing a hundred foot of flame in the air. Cedars do that too, and it's uh, I might I might think that their oil is a little bit more volatile than than some of the pine oils. That, that would make sense because they're, they're, they're all needle, that's for sure. I mean, you've got the trunk, but aside from that, there's just a lot of needle in that in that uh, material for sure. I would almost wonder if there was a possibility to take, you know, the cedar wood and separate the oil out and use that oil for something and then still have the wood that could be processed into biochar. Yeah, that, that that would definitely be an interesting one if uh, cedar oil uh, had 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 a market for it for sure. If we only knew any really smart engineering type people. 
But uh, well, that, well that, that's interesting that, that, that that's kind of, uh, you know, your guys' main challenge. So it sounds like figuring out a way to turn your cedar, invasive cedars into biochar in a very simple and efficient way would be really, really useful. So I, I'm kind of thinking, that, you know, for that, in, in terms of simplicity, that almost more like open burns or even like one of those air curtain burners might be the, the simplest way, way to go about that. Or something that looks like, you know, a, a method or a system to go out and dig a pit, fill it up, and then, you know, wait till it gets to a certain temperature and be able to quench it and have some guidelines on what, you know, what sort of equipment you need to be able to make that happen. Yeah, in, in fact, there are, there is a, uh, there's an NRCS, um, um, gosh, I haven't thought about this in a while, so make sure I explain this correctly, but there is an NRCS program for doing that with your wood waste. Um, uh, I'll have to, I'll have to look it up, but I haven't, I haven't played with that in a while, but there is a program where guys can get paid. If you're part of the Equip? CSP program, um. So if, if you're part of the CSP program through there, you, you can actually get paid to convert some of that material. You can get a cost share, I guess, to convert it. Mm-hmm. But they use uh, the Nebraska Forest Service uh, kind of set the guidelines, and I'm assuming the Kansas Forest Service has done the exact same thing uh, and copied them because they work hand-in-hand. But that may be another option for you guys if you're looking to make some biochar with some wood waste that you've got on site. There are, are some cost shares available, and they'll let you use, if you're familiar with them, those Oregon kilns. Um, where it's kind of like a pyramid, just an, an, an open kiln that you just kind of continue to stack material on top of. I have to check those designs out. If you if you get a chance, please send me that link, and I'll make sure it gets into the show notes page. Yeah, I, I will absolutely. Uh, yeah, there it is. Biochar production from Woodway. So, yes, it's part of the NRCS CSP. So I will I will absolutely make sure that I get that over to you guys. So kind of kind of wrapping up our time today. I want to know what's one of the biggest challenges that you faced on this path of regenerative agriculture and biochar and what has it taught you? Uh this that's easy. Closed-minded people. Um we I, I ran into that a lot, um, just people that are used to doing it the old way and they don't really want to hear about a new way. So that is by far and away the biggest challenge that I've faced when it comes to biochar is just people that aren't open to new ideas and new ways of thinking, new ways of doing things. Um, we compound that here in Wyoming because we're a coal state. And we're an energy state. That's right. And so any type of green business is just kind of shunned and you need to go to Colorado and go hang out in Boulder, you know, go play with your windmills, you know, whatever, that kind of mentality. Um, And so that's what we really, you know, that's been by far the biggest challenge in this is just that, you know, global warming doesn't exist. And, you know, that uh, <laughs> wood utilization isn't a problem and we just need to use coal. And uh, believe it or not, uh, the University of Wyoming, like their big focus right now is on um, turning coal into biochar. So they're convinced that they're going to pyrolyze coal and find a new market for the coal that they want to sell. And the farmers are going to apply pyrolyzed coal to their fields. And it's just mind boggling to think that somebody who was intelligent thought that was a good idea and that that would work. It's, it's weird because they're 
they're not willing to do what you're doing, but they're willing to do kind of what you're doing, but with what they're already, the materials are already using. Yeah, so it's, it's almost like, flattering because it's like, well, you are <laughs> acknowledging something by this, but I, I don't think that they realize what the regenerative missing the mark. would say mm-hmm. to that. Like, you want us to dig up coal, pyrolyze it, truck it down to some to the Midwest, and then apply it to fields? This just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense with the direction that we're going. So I, th- I think that's been just one of the challenges is just kind of that old way of thinking and, and not being willing to, to, to try new things and, and, you know, kind of shift our focus. Um, I think we need to, as far as our Western forests go, we need to really rethink what we're doing. Um, right now in this country, we have timber, you know, lumber prices are through the roof. It's $60 for a piece of plywood and, the, um, we literally just closed down a sawmill in the Black Hills last month because they couldn't get enough wood from the U.S. Forest Service. And so it is a supply thing, and it's not if they're fixing the price. No, it's it's we we we. It's really funny how a lot of our a lot of our wood just comes out of Canada. They have a better system in place for doing this, and what we do is we let our forests burn. And yep. mm-hmm. Bring in the cavalry, airplanes, helicopters. We had a thousand people over here fighting a fire. Uh, last summer, just in, just in Laramie, uh, I think they spent around $20 million fighting a little fire to save one neighborhood up in the National Forest. And it's just, it's mind-boggling how we how we manage our forest. And hopefully we can come up with a better way, you know, utilize more of that, make some actual lumber, uh, you know, put Americans to work, American manufacturing, uh, stop relying on Canada for things, uh, cut the cost of building a house, cut the cost of building a fence, and uh, utilize that wood so it doesn't get wasted and it just the list goes on and on. We just need to rethink how we're doing some of this. I'm, I'm just sitting here trying not to turn this into a libertarian propaganda podcast and say government is evil. They've ruined everything. Maybe I'll start that I next year. I understand. We'll, 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 we'll try to keep it on biochar. But you uh, want to talk about the fuel shortages now? Next? <laughs> oh, will that even be current events in three weeks, or will there be something even weirder? I'm just seeing all these videos of people with their Tupperware filling up it with gasoline. I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, CK, I almost feel like you and I just need to get on Wednesday night, do a current events and release it Thursday morning, just because yeah. things are just so weird. So You just think fast. when it can't get worse, it does. And then, yeah. yeah, I just, I always text Brian. I'm like, is this for real? Like, is this real life? <laughs> we and he's like, um, yes, this is real life, CK. <laughs> yeah, just it's like like Saturday Night Live does the weekend update. You could you guys could do the weekday update. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, I don't know. It'd be it might be a challenge to kind of keep that one upbeat sometimes. Oh yeah, yeah I I completely understand. So Rowdy, it's your turn. Is there uh, is there anything you'd like to know from me or CK that we haven't already covered? No, I, I, I'm just curious what, what, what you guys are seeing. I mean, aside from biochar, just what else is, you know, what else is interesting going on in Kansas these days? You know, I'm a little separated from that world right now in Wyoming, so I don't necessarily get to, you know, understand what, what you guys have going on. I know everybody's focused on, on beef prices and that sort of thing. And Oh, oh yeah, everybody's focused on, on beef prices and the disparity between fats and boxed beef right now, which was – $1,076 average profit per head for the Packers today. Eat beef. JBS. Yeah, JBS, Tyson, National, Marfrig, all those nice foreign entities that are 
strip mining our wealth and, and stealing our communities and robbing our farmers blind, but uh, I wonder how many You guys are doing a, a, a packing plant, though, in your neighborhood, right? Yes. We are. Slaughterhouse, right? Yeah, we got permitted uh, here in Medicine Lodge a couple weeks ago. The city council approved a permit for a microprocessing plant in the industrial park. Um, I kind of know the guy that's behind it, but uh, he's being fairly tight-lipped for now. So, I, I, That's probably what this one that, that just went in here in Laramie. I think they're only set up to process, like I think maybe, I want to say like 40 a week, I think is their limit. Okay, but here here's the fun part, though. You know, we're talking about 40 a week. That's a lot of pounds of beef. How much beef does the community of Laramie consume in a year versus how much is that plant going to produce? You know, that, that's a good question. This plant, I, I think, is it's not even so much tied to the, to the Laramie community. A lot of these are just ranchers in Wyoming that are processing here so they can resell it back in Torrington, back in Casper, back in Sheridan just because there is no USDA facility up there so that, so that they can resell it also for the guys that are marketing out of state, you know, if you're selling it down into the Fort Collins market or something like that. So it's kind of a unique situation where there is some uh, local buying of that meat there, but a lot of it is custom, still custom processing for other people that are doing, you know, different things with it where it's not being sold right here in Laramie. Mm -hmm. I did a rough calculation. If we do 40 head a week and let's just say they weigh 1200 pounds or they're light steers and their yield rate is 65%, which I know is also very conservative, over 1.6 million pounds of beef a year. Wow. That's pretty good. Now, divide that by 75, because it's 75 pounds a person a year, according to the USDA, beef consumption. Uh, over 20,000, so 21,000. That's a bit, that's a good size plant. That's a good size community plant. And that, honestly, you know, those are the plants that we should have everywhere. I mean, you shouldn't just have one of those in Laramie. You should have five of them in Laramie. No, I, I there think should be one right. in Chadron, Nebraska. I mean, if your community is 10,000 people, you should have a packing plant that size. So everybody in the community is benefiting from it. And then you're taking that meat and sending it to Chicago or New York or wherever, and it's branded from your region and possibly even back to ranch of origin. Yeah, that's uh, I, I'm sure you've kept up with a little bit, but Wyoming is like trying to be the, the innovator in blockchain. And part of that is beef chain. That was two episodes ago, which <laughs> as we record, this is still a, a week in the future. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating kind of learning about that. I was actually uh, a really, if you want to hear about a really new one that came up, is that there's a company in Colorado called Cow Tipping, and they're trying to get it set up to where, you, where people can tip the rancher when they're having dinner um, so they can give the guy a tip from, 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 their, from their dining room table um, for, for the beef that he's provided the, the family. So you're cow tipping. I like so, it. I did too. I, like I, thought, Sign up I was like Brian. thinking about the concept. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. So I don't know if it'll work out, but it definitely there's a lot of, of interesting ideas being thrown around right now. I, the idea that I'd like to stress is, is, you know, these neat concepts of traceability only work with transparency. That's the only way that we're going to, that we're really going to end up with a food system that connects producers to consumers is if we have 
top to bottom transparency of not only what's in the food, but what has been done to the food. No, I, I, I completely agree. There's a company here called Wyoming Gourmet Beef. They sell at some of the Walmarts. They sell a jerky product, but they actually have the name of the ranch on the back of the package. So you can even look there, and some of them will, will be different depending on when they were processing. But it's kind of cool knowing exactly what town, what ranch it was. But if you could trace it back down to the animal when it was born, what chemicals it had added to it, you know, then you really uh, have something interesting. The one challenge that I've run into, we're looking at doing blockchain to confirm the biochar carbon credits. And one of the things that we've run into is it's extremely carbon intensive. Um, so that's kind of one of the challenges. I know in Europe, they're, they're looking at kind of some of the simpler blockchains for doing that kind of verification because of, because of a much lower carbon footprint. But it was something else that I hadn't ever really considered. Um, but Apparently this week, everybody seemed to figure out that, that using electricity to manufacture Bitcoin isn't really that best. Isn't really that great of a use of energy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree with you there. It makes you wonder why all the like the, the Bitcoin miners all aren't located in Minneapolis or something. So at least half, you know, most of the year they can utilize all the heat that their computer systems are generating, doing all that work. But where most places, hell, they're running an air conditioner to cool it back off, just making it even worse. Yeah, or, you know, they co-locate somewhere where, oh, well, at nighttime, we can buy power for two cents a kilowatt hour. Like, oh, well, that's great. <laughs> it's still, uh, yeah, I just I just don't get Bitcoin, but that's probably a totally other rabbit trail. I just mm-hmm. No, that was pretty fun. I don't know if you watched Saturday Night Live this last weekend. But they, and the Dogecoin, right? The Dogecoin, it was hilarious. Yeah. And they kept just saying, so what is Dogecoin? Just over and over because nobody understands what the hell it is, I think. It, it, as far as I understand, it was a joke. It was originally started as a... Well, he made it a... tank, right? He made the market tank, and then he had to like go reinvest in it to make it a valid thing again, is, is what I read. Well, last week, I mean, granted, this is we're releasing this in three weeks, but last week he was talking about, um, or Tesla. The joke. No, Tesla oh, was yeah. taking, taking payments. They're going to accept it. Yeah. For Tesla's in Bitcoin. Today, yeah. he went backwards on that. And I saw it on Twitter and there was this whole oh, thread kidding. where he was posting graphs about the CO2 emissions of Bitcoin and, and how much electricity it used. Like, Oh, so that's why he retracted what he said? Yeah. Because of that reason? Yeah. Yeah, so I think the fallout in, in the next few weeks between um, cryptocurrency and the energy use of it and the carbon responsibility of that, that's going to get weird fast. It is. It, it definitely is. It's, it's funny how every, every industry is really facing that. I know that Colorado here recently, you're starting to see a lot of the articles about the cannabis industry. And one of the interesting ones that for every ounce of pot grown in Colorado, they use the equivalent of 17 gallons of gas with <laughs> energy. And it's appalling to think that, but that's another one of those industries where I think we're going to see a lot of scrutiny uh, and, and start seeing some, some focus on reducing some of that carbon footprint. So, so I got to share this. Uh, several years ago, I visited a commercial grow in Colorado and it was all indoors hydroponic i mean they had their nutrients they're all organic nutrients and it was this fish byproduct and this thing and this thing and this thing and i was noticing their lights i had a lot of questions about their lights and the tour guide apparently didn't 
want to answer these questions because about halfway through an older lady joined the tour and started answering all of my questions. And at the end of the tour, she took me aside and was like, I'm the CEO of this company and nobody's ever asked these questions before. And I kind of boiled it down to her. I said, how much power do you use? What's your kilowatt hour? And she told me how much electricity they use for a month. And I said, now what would it take to generate all your electricity from solar power? And she said, we could not afford the land. We looked at it, but we can't afford the land. That's the truth of it. That's the truth of it. Well, and it's also like people understand, like, energy has to come from somewhere, and it's not as simple as just getting rid of oil and gas or getting rid of, you know, coal or wherever else we're generating our energy. No, I I think that's absolutely right. And I I think as far as the cannabis industry goes, I suspect that within a a year or two that we're going to start seeing some of the really progressive growers that are growing, uh, you know, in greenhouses, using natural light, maybe using biomass for their heat. They're going to start marketing their cannabis as carbon neutral cannabis, carbon negative cannabis. Well, I see it on my kombucha and everything else. So, uh, of course, it's going to happen to cannabis. Absolutely. (laughs) I I think that's the thing is that as as everybody's under more scrutiny, we're going to start seeing, you know, more people like focusing on, on kind of these other uh, energy uses. And I think that's one of the neat ways that biochar can kind of get involved uh, with some of these industries, uh, heating greenhouses, or if you're in the, the sawmill industry, you can kiln dry lumber, especially where you guys are like here, you can kiln dry lumber just by setting it outside for a couple months um, down where you guys actually get what's called rain. Um, the uh, you, you need a little bit of heat and some different things to actually dry out. So I think there's certainly uh, plenty of opportunities. One of the other big ones that I'm really focusing on, Someday, I want to see biomass used to make cement. Um, cement emits like 5% of all global emissions, and uh, they use just massive amounts of energy. And if there's a, if we could figure out a way to utilize biomass for that, we could really... I mean, it's just a chemical reaction, if you think about it, right? The whole process. Yeah, it, it is. They just they just get it red hot. I mean, it's, it's a rotary kiln, and they get things, you know, 2,500 degrees in there. But um, that's another one of those that, that I would like to see you know, co-location of a biomass processing facility and cement production and start figuring out how we can combine some of these really energy intensive processes uh, in a more efficient way. Well, that'll make the road roads last longer. And then that will put all the road construction companies out of business. (laughs) That's right. We we wouldn't want that. We wouldn't want that. Just like we can't get people healthy because we've got to keep the fast food companies, the pharmaceuticals, the healthcare industry, We've got to keep keep everybody uh, in business instead of focusing on our own health. Just distill everybody down to a set of numbers that you can apply, that you can look at a diagnostic chart and apply a treatment. And apply mm-hmm. a treatment for not interested in curative at all. It's all treatment. There's no money in cures. Lots of money in treatment. And I, I think that's why why you know why it's a challenge to see, you know, on the agriculture side, just research for some things that aren't necessarily, there's not a way to make a huge profit for a company. You know, there's no way to make uh, billions of dollars in profit on dung beetles. So nobody really cares, <laughs> but they're really important. And, uh, and that, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be focusing on them. I've said it for a long time. You can't buy a box of soil health at the farm store. And that's why nobody talks about it. It's, it's very true. Well, here's, here's a good one for you. So I, I, I keep waiting around. What Have you ever heard of anybody who's going to start a dung beetle ranch? Well, thought I, about it. 
I mean, not specifically. Like growing dung beetles, right? Raising dung beetles. Yeah. Raising them. I've I've talked with Goosey Hayes about this. I think there's a real business opportunity for a young entrepreneurial ag guy because there are so many people that want to buy dung beetles to establish populations. Well, I mean, you can do that with ladybugs and everything else, right? Because they're predator bugs and they do that for greenhouses, right? If they have like an infestation. I bet. Do you know, is it easy to grow dung beetles? Have you looked into it at all? Uh, raising dung beetles. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, I, I, I've, we've looked into this. I, um, I have another business that makes skull hangers and they use flesh eating beetles for their skull. So I have a pretty good understanding of what it looks like, like captive, captive, um, flesh eating beetle breeding. And you look in Australia, there's people that sell them, especially some of like, especially the, the tunnelers, you know, they're worth like a dollar a piece. And I, I think there's more money raising dung beetles than there is in raising cattle in many ways. Brian gonna start racing beetles. <laughs> I'm thinking. I'm thinking. No, I mean, like I, I've I, I've talked about this with many people. There's an opportunity there. People try to buy them on dung beetle exchange in the United States all the time, and there's just there's nobody selling dung beetles. And if you had them down to a few different breeds and could send them a box like green cover seed with, uh, you know, a queen and a thousand beetles in a box, and they could just turn them loose on their property, I, I think that you'd have a really neat business opportunity there. Well, you know, we're an hour and a half in, so this will see. This will be a test if anybody's paying attention to see if anybody starts a dung beetle ranch in the next six months. There you go. There you go. <laughs> if they stay till the end and you get a call here in a little bit and say, hey, you want to come see my dung beetle ranch? You'll know. You're welcome. That they were listening. <laughs> but anyway, I, I think it's a really neat opportunity that somebody is, is going to capitalize on after seeing the amount of interest and uh, and just the lack of opportunities. And if you're going to raise something, might as well be one of the only few in the country. So, Yeah, find a niche. Own it. And own it early. Oh. Well, guys, I think that's uh, I think that's a pretty great place to wrap up. Rowdy, it has been a ton of fun today. Absolutely, Brian and CK. I really appreciate you guys uh, listening to all the, uh, the the talk about biochar and hearing about what, what what else is going on in your world, and occasional talking about meat packing plants and dung beetles and other important uh, important things going on these days. Oh, we're all about yeah. all about chasing regenerative rabbit trails wherever they may go. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Oh, CK, did we leave anything? No, I think it was great, especially for, for me. I I really didn't know a lot about Biochar other than like people ask me and then I say, I don't know anything about it. I'm sorry. Uh, so thank you for enlightening me. I feel like I learned a lot. So. No, no, I certainly appreciate it. If any of you, your listeners want to reach out with questions after the fact, um, like uh, Brian, I think mentioned, you can reach me at hpbiochar.com uh, is the website. We've also got a Facebook page. So there's plenty of ways to reach out if you have other questions or interested in uh, kind of what we have going on. And I'll make sure those make your, make their way into the show notes. As, as and I'm going to make sure to get the, the information on the NRCS uh, upgrade for or cost share for doing biochar on your property. So I'll make sure to get that over to you. As sometimes show notes are a little painful for me to write, but I'm getting better. <laughs> so with that, guys, I'm Red Hills Rancher, and I want to really, really again thank Rowdy for joining CK and myself today on this wonderful journey of regeneration and biochar and what it can all be used for. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, a private group, Ranching Reboot Paddock, and be sure to Share the podcast with your friends if we've made an impact in your life or changed your paradigms in any way. 
So until next week, gang, Red Hills Rancher, out. <laughs> <laughs>